What do you think they're saying? Well, I don't know, miss. Just children's talk. They're talking about them. Talking horrors. So far, these monsters have kept their distance. Only been seen in high places, through windows, across the lake. But they intend coming closer. And if they do... What will you say to them, Master? Well, what can I say? That his house is being poisoned? That the children are a pair of calculating liars? That they have friends who would frighten them out of their lives if they weren't deeply and forever bound to them? Oh, yes, I know. He'll think I'm insane or that it's some stupid trick to get him to notice me. Oh, I wish there was something I could do to help. Hello, listening people. Hello. Bartek, you I mean, scared hello. me. Ooh, you scared me when you said it normally. I was so <laughs> spooked out. <gasps> Spook? Like a like a like a like a cop, like right? A, what? Isn't like um like a when they are being followed by like an FBI agent, like gangsters, don't they call them spooks? I I think spook is a slur actually against black people. I don't think so. I think you're wrong. By the way, you're, by the way, you're Bart, Ryan. By the way, Bartek always brings the racially uh, off balance comments to our podcast. Spook. I swear that's a thing that you say about like I'm being followed by the FBI or CIA. Like oh, those those spooks are after spook me. Spook slang. Spook slang. A racial slur referring to a black person. And an undercover agent or spy. We're both thank right. Thank you, thank We're you. We're both right. Fucking well, thank, thank you. me too. I was right too. What happens if they're both? <laughs> if they're an undercover black man? Well, one's a verb, so it's a undercover racist slur for a black man who's currently spooking. That's fair enough. But no, we are Spit and Polish Presents likingly because we're always spitting and we both happen to be Polish. And why are we talking about all of these... References to spook and spooky. What's that all about, Bartek? Uh, well, we're just very learned individuals, so we just know a lot of things. Like, you know, we were both right about spook. Yeah, I, I like that you you just you immediately had the racial slur for it up your up your sleeve of knowledge, and I had the the slur against police up my sleeve. Well, you had a verb. That's different. I'm verbing. I had it a up. noun. I'm verbs aren't offensive. Verbs. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, but we are doing what exactly? What's happening on the podcast? We are spookily doing our uh, podcast called Spit and Polish Presents Pictures Powwow. Uh, I was almost going to say likingly because we're always spinning, but that's not no, what we say. No, likingly because we're always powwowing, powwowing in our pictures. <laughs> yeah, I like pictures. You that, do, and that's the podcast. Um, on pictures powwow, it's a weekly show. It's coming out on Tuesdays. You might be listening to it on Tuesday or not, or there, Monday if you're in the northern hemisphere. There are six other days. Would it be Monday? For yes, the, yes, it would. It's, I know how time signs work. It's like Jimquisition. Monday's coming, not for us. It's Tuesday. Um, every week we talk about a different movie, and it's October, so we're doing spooky films. Spooky. Spooky month is here. We talk about films that are on the more scary, icky, or just that vibe of October. It doesn't need to be a direct horror. We're not just doing the slasher movies or the jump scare films. We like to gather a, a collection of films that 
really just say, you need to watch this with the lights off, perhaps, or with a uh, with a, with a group of friends, maybe, or or ones that send a chill down your spine. And it has fallen on me this time to kick off the month of spookiness, and I picked a film. So everyone, if you have not seen the film called The Innocence, we recommend that you give it a watch. But the quick logline of it before we go into the full spoilers, the details and all, is this is a period piece film Mm -hmm. about a governess who has been a newly assigned governess who has to look after some children in the middle of nowhere in a lovely country manner and things aren't going well. There's perhaps some spirits, or is it the children just winding her up? This is an adaptation of Turn of the Screw, which has been adapted a few times. In fact, my DVD cover for The Innocence even says that this was the original film that eventually got remade and repurposed into the Nicole Kidman film The Others. And this is uh, this is one of those uh, 60s black and white movies where there's an atmosphere and a mood. So go and watch The Innocence for yourself because it's time to dig in. It's time to get, time to get cultured. feet dirty in the lake and the pond. And ooh, ooh, I'm just so scared, Bartek, because it's spooky month. Yeah, you're wearing an orange shirt. That's how scared I am. I'm I'm evoking my favorite character from the TV series Drive, who in the pilot episode of Drive, a character wore a shirt so orange that it reflected off of the lights <laughs> that were on it onto every other surface, and it was beautifully done. Meanwhile, it gave I'm me wearing the chills. I'm wearing the opposite of orange. <laughs> you're wearing blue because you're feeling down. I have seen The Innocence before. I had to watch this during a university course that we did where for our drama unit we had a particular one where we were doing an adaptation of a pre-existing work for the stage and we had to give our own spin on it. At least my class did. Yeah, this is Ryan's class. I was in a different one. But you still had to do the, you're adapting something yes. that's pre-existing. Yes. But you put your own spin on it and for, for our class, we did uh, Turn of the Screw, we watched The Innocence, we read the script to the others. We didn't watch the others for some reason. We read the script to it. Like the full script? Yes, the full script. Oh, okay. And... We had a class that was evenly split between boys and girls, which is unusual <laughs> for for a drama class Mine because usually it is pretty stacked with uh, women who are in it. My class was 12 girls, three boys. Which would have been perfect for an adaptation of Turn of the Screw because there's only two men. In it, three, actually, there's three. There's the uncle, there's Quint, and there's there's Miles. Yeah, mine was 12 girls and three boys. Our play had three characters. It was two guys and one girl. Fantastic. And yeah, so we did our version of uh, The Innocence. Uh, we did our version of Turn of the Screw. I read Turn of the Screw at the time. I even went out of my way to watch 
a film that was a story about Quint that starred Marlon oh, Brando. Oh, okay. See, uh, you've told me the story of like you setting up for this class, and I thought that you watching this film was you going out of your way. No, no, so this was one we watched on on campus in the classroom, on the big screen. Uh, but I went and watched another movie that had Marlon Brando where he played Quint, and, and it's very it's not particularly good in comparison to this, but it was interesting nonetheless. But that I've more I've pretty extensive history with uh, not only this film, but things that came before it, the source material itself, and things that came afterwards. So I'm wanting I've been wanting to do it for the podcast, but I've just been choosing other films over the years. Last year we did The Haunting. And I really, it was a, a toss of the coin with that of mm. The Haunting or The Innocence. Both came out around the same time. Both are black and white. Both have a certain type of acting, a certain type of atmosphere, a and certain yeah. type of is it real or is it not. And you would have been too scared to pick this one considering that you're haunted by the ghost of you not trying hard enough in the play. I did get a lower mark because I didn't put enough in my journal, which was real, real devastating because my journal was full. But that was bullshit on the teacher's part. There's not <laughs> enough time to get into my disappointments with that less with that teacher. But Bartek, the innocence, outside of hearing me have this experience, any familiarity with this? Any knowledge? Had you seen it before, or is this a one where nothing from this was uh, familiar to you? Nothing. I I didn't even see the play that you did, um, but I saw all the like advertising materials for it. So I do remember, and also you talking about how there were so many female characters. Like I even brought it up last week when you said it. I asked, like, oh, is that the one where like everyone's a woman? And you're like, kind of. And having seen the film now, I realize, oh, okay. There aren't that many characters, and it is female. There are more females than males, but it's not necessarily like, oh, everyone's a woman. But I can definitely see how, yeah, the males in your class would have had less uh, things to do than the females. Um, yeah, I didn't know really much about it other than, like, it's going to be some sort of gothic thing. I think there are some kids involved. Um, I don't even think I knew much about Tammy. It, uh, the turn of turning of the screw, turn yeah. of the screw. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was mostly blind, but you know, you gave me an idea, and the play advertising at the time gave me an idea of the vibe of it. I obviously am a fan. I've enjoyed this. This was one of those experiences at university where a film was given to us and it's it stuck. It it made a mark. It really lingered. That doesn't always happen. Oftentimes when you're having to study a piece of work, it removes the enjoyment from it. We've discussed this over the years on the podcast. Studying drama and film, that happens. Even though I would say when you're doing it at university, there's almost... You're you're choosing actively for that experience to happen, while at high school, Hmm. when I'm doing a class like English and they're making us watch some particular film... I'm not really choosing that, and I'm not really choosing, say, to go over Blade Runner with the fine-tooth comb that ruins the sensation of the film itself to break it down into how one writes an essay, analytically speaking. 
But when you're at university, you choose that. You are aware going in. So there's almost a more openness to a film being broken apart in that way. While when I'm in high school, I didn't choose that for Rabbit Proof Fence or for Blade Runner, or you didn't choose that for the recent films you've selected on the pod. You're going to take it out of my mouth. Listening people, go back four episodes and listen to our review on The Body. Oh, I thought you were also going to say on your Robert De Niro classic film, oh, the, mission the Mission, as well. The Mission, not where as you watched, much. Yeah, but you yeah. had a vague memory of silliness in the class of people not wanting it. Hmm. Uh, but how did you go with The Innocence? You didn't know much going in. I told you, watch this with the lights off. Mm-hmm. Enjoy this. It's more atmospheric. You know, same time as The Haunting, so you have something, t- some similar things to compare to. You weren't a big fan of The Haunting. No, but that's well, that's one I definitely need to give another go. There are definite things about my viewing experience that went against it. Uh, this one I don't need to. This was a good one. I like this one quite a bit. Um, watched it with the lights off, could have had them on, but, you know, I guess it helped. Uh, my eyes will kill me for it, but, uh, you know, that's the way it goes with digital media. No, this was, this was a really fun film, and it, it's very much in the vein of a few things that we've done. Like, you were going over a brief synopsis earlier, and it's like, yep, you're ticking a lot of the shining marks there, um, a lot of the haunting ones a little bit of burning. Like, this is going to be another episode where we talk about, like, oh, is it, is it psychological or was it, like, really happening? And then we're going to be like, I think it's this. It's like, ah, but there's all this evidence against it. And, you know, we've had, we've got, we've danced this tango before and we're doing it again, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, of course. But there's the unique context of when it came out as well mm-hmm. uh, and the genre because some of those ones The Shining came after this, and Kubrick is someone who is a film aficionado as well as uh, someone who liked certain types of literature. And Turn of the Screw, I mean, even the title of the original story gives you an indication of what it's about. It's it's the turning of the screw. It's, It's that sense of cracking underneath all of the pressure. And is that what is is that? Is that the case for our main character? Is she just feeling the pressure of her job and her psyche? Is it just falling apart underneath? Or is there ghostly spirits that is fucking with her? And it is a real case of what is your interpretation? But before we even get to all of all of that, what did you think of the actual pitch of this film, the, the, the setup and the way it went about it? Uh, the pitch of it? I mean, yeah, it was it was a solid pitch. Like I said before, it um, reminded me a lot of The Shining especially. I mean, this which film am I talking about? Main character in the opening scene talks to a person that owns a big manor that a big building that will that will be the setting of the rest of the film, and that character never appears again. It's you know very similar in that regard, um, but this one with a much bigger supporting cast. That's quite a big thing about it. Um, yeah, I it 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 starts off very you know pleasant. You know, daytime, it's it's not... Most of this film, I think, is daytime. Even some of the night scenes look very bright. Um, yeah, and, and it it unfolded itself very slowly. Like, one of the big, uh, I guess, horror points or dark points about this is that you have children behaving, you know, in, in troubling manners, un, unchildlike. 
and early on, I was actually praising the film for like, oh, you know, the, the, I, I would imagine in a film like this, you know, the children will just be like dialed up, like super creepy, like 90% right from the get go. Mm-hmm. But they really slowly got into there. Like it was the, the, the daughter who we meet first, like she definitely has a few things going on from the beginning, but it's only really like when the spider is eating the butterfly that it kind of begins and it kind of escalates from there. It very much started off pleasant and it was a question of like okay what is the actual horror of this gonna be because even though i knew the sort of vibe that the film was gonna have i didn't necessarily know what the uh potential supernatural element would be so eventually you realize uh along with our main character discovering the backstory of this location that it's going to be potentially ghosts I really admired and i had forgotten this but admired how the film starts telling you it starts straight away telling you that this is going to be slow dread this isn't going to be spooky jump scares this isn't going to be a monster running around or even telling you if it's real or not because we get a black screen for a very long time mm. and it's just singing it's just this music it's just this otherworldly sensation the trivia was talking about how a lot of people were confused by that back in the 60s. Yes, but it's a choice, and it's not just a, a, a frivolous one. It's one that is very specifically telling you on a subconscious level what the tone of this is going to be for the remainder of the runtime. And I just always love a cold open like that. That's even before we get a proper cold open where we get her praying and the credits and all of all of that good stuff. It's it is just such an arresting sound and visual of just it's just black and you're and you're waiting for something to happen. You're like, "Okay." And then the the usual here's 20th Century Fox and the logo comes up and it's just why did they do that? And then once you get into the premise of this and how it's going to methodically go about it. It's just such an honest way of opening up the movie. I just can't think of a better way of allowing the viewer in on what your experience is going to be with this particular film. It's just so brilliantly done. And I forgot about it until I turned it on last night. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And once you have finished the movie, that song that fucking little song that they keep singing and humming and the music box oh, plays. Oh, Willow and, Whaley, was it? Yeah, and, and, and the score keeps implementing. It just becomes maddening. It just becomes this maddening thing where, like our main character, you become frustrated with this beautiful old song. And same with his prayer. And, and it's just all of these things that are very minute stack on top of each other, such as the children's behaviours. What is great is the way that those performers pitch it. It's like you said, they're not playing it up to 110%, I'm a creepy little child, but it goes into the writing as well. All of the behavioural tics that feel unchildlike very much feel like that because we are viewing it from a specific person who's wanting to find those things. Mm. Because if you just said out loud, without giving all of this other context that builds to this paranoid state, that, oh yeah, this kid did this thing, or they said that thing, or they behaved or reacted like that, 
you would be like Miss Gross in the movie. It was like, oh, okay, well, that's just kid stuff. Or so, that's just how Miles is. Or that's just how Flora is. And it is just, this is a death by a thousand cuts type film where each little detail, each little action that the kids take just keep stacking on top of one another until you just collapse under the weight of it all. And and it's just it's just such a it just hits you in the face with it ever so slowly. And that's what I really appreciate. But I wanted to ask about that, the premise and how it pitches, because with this being an older film and this is an adaptation of an older story, it's easy to look at what's come since then and say this is tired maybe too familiar, cliched, trite, because it is, here's a pretty lady, goes to a creepy house in the middle of nowhere, and she's encountering ghosts, and is she actually seeing them, or is she going crazy? And that's been done a million times now, especially within this genre. And I just wanted to touch base with you, as someone who's also not a big horror aficionado, you and I, even though we do Spooky Month, the horror movies aren't what we live in. We like them well enough, we aren't adverse to them, but we aren't people who would claim that we're horror movie fans by any means. But no. we are familiar enough with the trappings. L- let's remind everyone, last year I said that the first horror movie film I ever saw was the Elm Street remake in like 2010. <laughs> and last year we did Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. And that is a film that really set in stone a lot of the cliches you would see in slasher films to come. Yeah. And yet I found that the film could manage to overcome some of those hurdles, but also it was kind of annoying. But with with The Innocence, I, I, I just think that the artistic flair that is presented from the visuals, the direction, and the music can make this timeless in a way where it is so, so genuine in its approach to what can be considered nowadays a well-trodden path. Definitely early on when I was cluing into the fact that you know, as I started off this episode, I listed like, oh yeah, we've done this kind of tango before in a few films on the podcast. Definitely early on, I did have that thought. Um, I, I wasn't you know, impatient with the film or anything like that. Um, but towards the end, like looking back on it, I was really in awe of just how well structured everything was. Like we do have the central mystery of like, is this lady, you know, mentally unwell or is the supernatural stuff really, um, is it genuine? And there is so much evidence and contrary evidence for both arguments that it's actually it was actually a really really great experience of you know coming up with your own idea of like what you think it is because you know as much as we always do the thing of like oh but what about this it's like there's just so many things for both sides and uh, you know the the Mrs Gross character provides so much of that because you do have a very strong understanding of uh you know what the kids have gone through in the past so like regardless of whether they're just being children or if they're being possessed they have trauma mm-hmm. that is going to play a factor into it and it's just a, a matter of like is it just the trauma or is it something on top of that um and that alone you know justifies sort of 
uh, the Mrs. Gross character's apprehension towards the whole situation, and you really start to feel for this character where, I guess, in a more modern story, I could see a character like Mrs. Gross being more one-dimensional. Like, as, as soon as, you know, something rubs her the wrong way about our main character, she's just going to be, you know, antagonistic the whole way through. But she really flip-flops on... Well, flip-flop, that's usually a negative term, but uh, she she really tries to see it both ways, where there are times where she's really on our main character's side, and there are times where it's like, I, I just don't buy that. Mm. I really think that you should... She withholds things, too. Yeah, and and that's always a factor of, like, oh, is, is she in denial, or is she, you know, also trying just to be sensitive? Because we are talking about, you know, a potential abuse that has happened in the past, Um you know, the children potentially saw abuse happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can definitely see how a matronly character like that, who who even says that, you know, I've raised so many children, um, would would know the consequences of handling that information in a non-sensitive way. So, you know, you just have all of these factors at play and you can never really reach a confident conclusion. You can only really go with your gut in the end. I admire that with a film like this, you could have multiple interpretations, but depending on which one you have, it can make all of the characters, most of the characters, horrible people, like bad people. Like if, if it is a case of it is actually ghosts and they're real and that is the case and it is, Mrs. Gross goes from what could be the heart of the film, like the emotional centre, because we can relate to her. Mm. Although we know Miss Giddens and we've been in her shoes, she is of a, a certain ilk that we would be distant from. She's she's a little bit upper crusty, she's religious, she's this, 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 but Mrs. Gross... She she's she's a worker, you know, she's been around the block and she says a lot of sensible things. But if it is actually ghosts and she is in on it or she is aware of it and she is just gaslighting or she's withholding things and she is withholding things, it makes her no longer her sympathetic and nice character. But that's the thing. All of these different interpretations can have drastically different ways you approach how you feel towards these people. You may feel for the kids, or you may hate the kids and think they're being little brats who are winding her up, or are they victims? Are they actually innocents? It's all in the title. And and Giddens, of course, you we could do a whole fucking thesis about if she's someone you should feel sympathetic for or not. But that is the balls of this movie of just saying we're going to throw it all up in the air you decide do you want to read it any of these ways but even if we go a step further if you do how does it make you react to the people you just spent time with Mm. and that is just a an absolute joy when you're thinking back on a movie this is definitely one where it's a film that wants you to think about it. It doesn't just want to spook you and then off you go back home and you have dinner and nothing happened. It it lingers. This is why I really adore a gothic horror story like this. I also like The Haunting for instance where it's a it's a it, it creeps out it creeps on you. It just slowly 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 gets into your veins and it just it's hard to detox from what this movie's spell is and that's why I really like 
your haunted manor type stories and your ghost stories. When it comes to horror or the genre of it, I'm not into the slasher, killer, monster running around. I prefer the more slow-going things like this or Neon Demon or The Haunting, just to point to some examples that we've done on the podcast, or Starry Eyes was another great example of this as well. I've actually vocalized that my favorite type of uh, supernatural things to watch in a film is uh, witch stories. I like witches and and the pagany stuff as well. There's just a certain aura that comes with those. And I just, uh, when I was going through this last night, I had the lights off. I had just done a whole bunch of things, but this it's a very soothing experience once you allow the methodical pacing and the performances and the music and and you said it this is mostly in the day this mm. is a mostly in the day film and yet it's bright and color like it's bright and colorful even though it's in black and white you can tell how exuberant it is it still unsettles recently uh, there was a film midsummer which was made by the guy who did hereditary and and uh, a few others which its big thing was it was a brutal, scary horror movie set in like Sweden during the bright summer day and everything's glowing and all like all the flowers are gorgeous and yet it still had this creep factor to it. And I just thought the innocence did that. It managed to communicate all of that in the bright daylight in black and white. Yeah, we've done a couple of films that have been pretty daylight. I think The Love Witch was mostly daytime mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Bright colors with that too. Mm, yeah. Really nice colors. Uh, with the uncle. We start out the movie yes, that with was a thing. <laughs> Michael Redgraves, who was a famous actor, and his daughter, Vanessa Redgraves, is a famous actress. They're acting royalty over in England. Uh, but Michael Redgraves is here to say, I don't give a fuck. I'm a selfish man. And I don't want to look after these snotty children. He very casually says brats. He does. That really threw me off. Like, oh, wow. And when you are watching it for the first time, you take it for face value. It's like, okay, this is a guy who doesn't give a shit. He's a rich guy. He just wants to travel the world and throws his problems over in this little corner. And you fix it. You deal with it. I don't want any involvement here anymore. And there's moments during the course of events where the main character is tempted to contact him, even though it would be annoying for him. And I don't know how to read him anymore because I did think of him as genuine. I'm like, oh, this is a genuine guy. Like, he doesn't know any of the events happening up in this country manor. Like, he doesn't know any of the spooky ghost stuff. But the more we learn about Quint... And the more we learn about, like, oh, yeah, he was kind of, he was good buddies with the uncle and all of that. I'm like, how, like, objectively, the uncle's a shitty guy already. Mm. But how much is he a shitty guy? You reference The Shining. That's one of the great questions about that film as well, is the guy who sends Jack Torrance up there, the guy we never see outside of that single scene, really, or, like, when he's enduring them through the whole entire stuff. You, you wonder how complicit they are. And that's one of the big questions is, how complicit is everyone to the shenanigans going on here? Is Miss Gross in on things? Is the uncle? Is, is how, how much, how aware are the children of stuff that is happening? And that's the, that's the psyche that the film leaves you in when you go 
away from it. You're like, oh God, what what is the state of things? What did you think of that 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 setup? Like the uncle just laying it all out of like, here's the list of things that need to happen for me to be happy, and don't you fuck it up. <laughs> I did like how blunt it was. Um, you asking the question of like how complicit was he in all of this or how much did he know, I actually wasn't considering that at all. <laughs> I really did just take it at face value. I was like, oh, yes, just deal with that for me. I don't know what's going on there. Just deal with it and, you know, he's off doing whatever. I, I, just, I just thought that that was his blunt honesty of like if he was told some spooky stuff was going on, he'd be like, what? He wouldn't care. It's like, oh, yeah, I know Quint died, but you think he's a ghost? Like, what? You're crazy. A lot of films, (laughs) I feel, of a fantasy or supernatural and very much sci-fi have the innate ability to give us hints of a world before, hints of lore and backstory, and The Innocence does that so well. It is how many breadcrumbs can we get about what happened before the main character arrived to Mm. the point in which by the end of it, you feel like you've watched two movies in a way where you've watched this movie, but also you have enough story given about what happened previously with Miss Jessel and Quint and Mrs. Miss Gross and the children. It's just, it's just such a jam packed story, but it's so just casual yeah, about it's, it. It's a thing that I can see being really easily done in other mediums that, you know, have a lot more time to flesh out a full-on story. For a film to do it, that's that is really impressive. I would say that it is like you've watched uh, this film and a very abstract film because you don't get all of the details, but you really do get a good sense of all of the key points. Um and watching this, I did recall in my head, okay, this is an early 60s film, so there was different film standards back then. Um, I was thrown off, be- I-, I guess British was different to American, I was thrown off by how blunt some of the things yeah. they were talking about were. like when they f- And showed. There's some things that they show in here that I'm uncomfortable with the kiss particularly the kiss the the long kiss um but there was the part where mrs gross was describing uh uh quint and miss jessel uh i forget the line but it was the dark woods line yes and i remember when they were doing it in the house in the open yeah it was some sort of abstract line it was like it was like in dark woods and i was thrown off like in what way and then uh, our main character says, like, where everyone could see. I'm like, oh, they're talking about sex. Yeah. They were doing acts that one would do in the dark woods out yeah. in the open. It's like, oh, God. Yeah. It is it is unflinching with its with its language too. It's since this is a period piece and we have characters who are religious as well. Yes, they yeah. they have to speak about these things in a way that obviously suits the time that the film came out in the 60s but it just it it perfectly gels with the characters themselves the time period and them having to be careful because there are children about you don't just say oh yeah they were fucking out in the open even if the children are up in bed you you yeah. make sure you don't you don't say bullshit you say stuff and nonsense stuff and nonsense stuff and nonsense stuff and nonsense <laughs> but the the usual route with a horror film, say, 
And this isn't a standard. This is just sometimes this happens a lot. Like we got this with Friday the 13th, just mentioned it. You get the big exposition scene where it says, this is what happened. (laughs) This is how it went down. This is why the creepy shit is going on. And instead of giving us that one big scene like that, they give us several small enough scenes where you feel like you're about to enter it and then something will stop it from happening. A child yeah. will enter or Mrs. Gross will shut down or we have to go to church or we are doing this. And it always leaves you on this edge of your seat with anticipation to hear the full story. You get a lot of scenes of our main character metaphorically rolling a dice like, am I going to get the answer now? And it also gives you the understanding of why she's becoming so wired and frayed about needing to hear more because we are like her. We want to hear the full story. She needs to hear the full story. And it gives us in the short span of time that this movie actually like is in, like this is 99 minutes long, it really does play around with the perception of time. Like how long has it been? I can't tell you how long they've been out there. Like, I'm sure if you could track, like, you could try and track it, but it, it, this could be, um, like, two weeks. This could be months. Like, it is really loosey-goosey with time distortion in a great way, like, in a truly great way. Like, the transition shots, we haven't talked about any of them, but they do these transition shots that really screw around with the the timeline of things. There was this really great one where... She's in her black dress, I'm pretty sure, and she's standing in a certain way, and she's like in the center of the frame, and it fades into from day to night because now we're in a room, and what was her black dress is now the shadow of one of these big statues in the inside near a door, and it's like, whoa, and now it's like late at night and they're putting the kids to bed while that scene was like her in the classroom in the daytime. And it's like, oh, okay, we're just really thrown for a loop of how they, even through transitions or cuts, it will just go into a different place. And it's not being showy about it. It's not being, I just want to get your opinion on this at least. This film has, you know, that kind of is it real, is it not weirdness, but I would never describe the way that this presents itself as overtly trying to be like, aren't we ever so artsy and cerebral? This has a very old-fashioned feel to it. No, I, th- I think what you were describing there was so off-the-cuff off and flowy that I barely even noticed it. There were a couple of you know, very interesting-looking things that they were doing, but yeah, the transitions between like times of day, I think I might have missed that. I'll definitely check out it again just to you know, actually get that in there. But yeah, there were a lot of really interesting stuff. Like one of the, uh, it was when uh, our main character, what's the last Giddens. name again? Giddens. I want to say Jessel. When Miss Giddens first sees Quint up close and like the first time you see him, he's like just slowly flowing in and you read in the trivia that like, you know, they put it's, him on like a dolly or something like yeah, that. Yeah, a little trolley um, But it was a really cool thing because, you know, it's a black and white film. He's in the darkness and, you know, he's got facial hair that stands out. So it's like he's just coming out of the darkness and it's a really cool look. And yeah, it reminded me of, um, as I've established already, the first horror films I saw were very late 2000s, early 2010s during the era of like the jump scare. And so for quite a while, my idea of horror was like, oh, yeah, they do like variations of kind of jump scary things. And I remember once I was listening to a review of uh, the 
Conjuring, I think mm-hmm. it was, and the reviewer was talking about how um, there is a part in the film, and I have seen the film since, um, where uh, a, the creature is, you know, just hanging on the wall above a fireplace, and it wasn't like, you know, a surprise shot and it's there, it just simply showed it, and he described it as, that's just scary on its own, and I remember that line really opened up you know, my my understanding of horror, it's like something can just be scary on its own. It doesn't have to be showy like that. Um, and yeah, that, that shot of, you know, Quint just appearing out of the darkness slowly, it wasn't like zooming in on that and like showing off and doing like a big sting, music sting. It just happened and like I noticed and was shocked and then later on our main character was shocked by it. And yeah, I really like that moment. It's... The little things that can unnerve you, such as a woman in all black standing in a body of water in the distance and the reeds, and it's not just a quick blink and you'll miss it. No, no, no. They're sitting on that. They're looking at that. They're examining that. And then when we get to a point in which our main character now dresses like that, it makes your teeth just grind with anxiety because she's going down the same path. She's now becoming the thing that she's trying to fight against. And how aware is she of that? And it just gives you this knowledge of this is not going to end well. And you could say that's obvious with it being a horror film, but it's still the the case that you need to establish that within the film. You can't just say, ah, it's it's the genre, you know how it all goes. And with the information being doled out along the way, I really also appreciated we aren't just learning about what happened at Bly Manor. We're learning about Miss Giddens. We're learning about her life. We're learning about her points of view. At the beginning, she comes across as a golly gee, I'm just excited, I love children, I'm just so keen to be pleasing to everyone else. Uh, Oh, yeah, you're not heartless. Honest, but not heartless, of course. But I'm. I, she's she's wide, you know. She's wide-eyed and she's innocent herself. But as we see her crack, but even outside of that, the more we get about her life leading to this moment, the more her attitudes and the certain things that she's said along the way and her values that she's dispensed add up. There was that moment in which she talked about her house. Hmm. It wasn't a big house, it was a small one where you could never keep any secrets. Everyone would find them in the end. And that just says everything to me about why these kids get under her skin. They're rich, they're entitled, they live in this giant mansion, and they have secrets. Things that she never got to have. Things that she doesn't understand. She's still like a child herself. And she's being told, like, yeah, this is normal. Because this is her first job. She's got to be like, I don't know, 20 years old, maybe. Mm. It's kind of hard to tell how old she's supposed to be because she's in the old time you get up and she has the eccentric hairdos that get looser as the film goes on. Like, by the end, her hair's as fully long and out. But it's, uh, what did you think of our main character outside of the big, is she crazy, is she not? What did you think about her and what they revealed about her personality along the way? Um, so in the opening scene where she's being interviewed by <clears throat> Mr. Redgrave, 
Um, one of the first questions she gets asked was, do you have an imagination? And she very enthusiastically said, yes, I do. And uh, I knew from that moment, like, okay, how's that going to be used against you in this film? Um, so in, in with that in mind while watching the film, um, I was, I guess, biased towards her side because I knew that, like, that would come into play at some point. Um, it was already giving me the thoughts of, you know, like, like burning. It was like, oh, are you going to be jumping to conclusions? Um, so I guess it, with that in mind, yeah, I, I did have a bias towards her. But yeah, all these little things that were coming out, um, not just about herself, but also uh, the the other side of the argument, as I've talked about before, yeah, really did just create this really fun experience of like trying to piece everything together and, you know, work out if I can really, you know, be against her and think that she is actually just crazy after all. The performance, Deborah Kerr, I mean, it's what it hinges on. It's the performances of all of these actors. We have so few characters and we have to be pinballing how we feel about them and what we perceive of them. The central performance from Deborah Kerr is one of the best in in this in this type of film. In the we did way back well, at least time last year, wasn't it? We did Stroker, Stoker. Yeah, that was Stoker. Like second week, I and think. And I joked about like, oh, I like the Nicole Kidman in a big mansion losing her mind movies. But Nicole Kidman's very skilled at that, and I, I think Deborah Kerr is a big influence on her because in Stoker we had met Nicole Kidman once she had already lost it, and the trick in that movie was seeing her almost in the reverse of what this character goes through, where we start out with them being understandable and relatable, and by the end you don't know if you should be on her side with Giddens. You don't know by the end, like, did she do the right thing? Is she in the right? Or is she a religious zealot fanatic who's this Puritan figure who's taken out her grievances onto children? While in Stoker, not to get into it too much, but we meet Nicole Kidman and she's this uncaring, detached mother who's a million miles away. But when you reach the conclusion of that, you feel more sympathetic towards her and you know why she's like that far more than you did at the beginning and she becomes she becomes the more sane person in the film and and i think deborah kerr just does such just an immaculate job of the transformation and i never feel that she's over the top i could see people saying she's over the top and you know she's she's given very loud moments and very pronounced moments but i think it just is so in line with the the overall oppressive atmosphere of the film because it's not just her losing it. It's Mrs. Gross is losing it. The kids are losing it. And I feel like they're all... It, it earns getting loud. It does. Yeah. Well, I remember for The Haunting, we had that discussion, you and I, about how much did we feel it earned when it went to the bombastic or the melodramatic or the, the, the loud moments. And we didn't... Like, even I, a fan of that movie, didn't feel like it earned it in the way that this one does. Uh, with with Giddens, were there any standout scenes or choices for you, or or just uh, little tidbits or actions that she took along the way? 
there were some moments um, with her interacting with the kids and you know talking to um, you know the other adult other adults uh, the the housekeeper because um, there weren't really too many other adults. Uh, that reminded me a lot of being a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely connected with that a bit. There was the there was the classroom scene where like the girl was like making loud noises with the pencil, and the kids started arguing, and she had to break it up. And you know, I've been in that situation before. I've ne- I've never you know dealt with it the exact way she did, where it's like let's pretend it's your birthday, go get dressed. <laughs> um, I've definitely had some classes where it's like just play, guys. Um, but yeah, just trying to work out on the fly, like how do I how do I deal with this situation that's unfolded in an unexpected way? Um, what's a way that I can calmly react to this situation? And you know, what what's a question that I could ask that non-intrusively um gets the response I need out of this child? Um, definitely a lot of sympathetic and even partially empathetic moments, uh, like that, especially, yeah, like I said, with that, that school scene and even just some of the other scenes where she's talking one-on-one with the children. I liked that she tried to be nice and sometimes it would succeed and sometimes it would fuck up. Mrs. Gross says, oh, it's awfully late for them to be playing games. Oh, I know, but... I just thought it would be nice to play a game of hide-and-seek, and she's now in love with the children. We actually open up the film with her praying, uh, which gives us a real tone set as well. Her praying and talking about that. She's just trying to protect the children. She loves children. Yeah, she says that she loves children more than anything. And it's so manic that it tells you that Oh, something bad's going to happen to the children, but then the twist is it's the children that could be the bad ones. Or maybe they're not. Uh, but when she did the hide-and-seek thing and Miles is choking her and he's not understanding, or is he? I relate to that. I've had that experience recently. I went uh, to my uh, wife's uh, hometown area and we'll with the nephews and nieces and we had one of the nephews he's around this age now a bit younger he's around like nine i want to say and and he was just like hit me and do stuff because he doesn't he doesn't understand and even Mm. when you tell him he just kind of doesn't listen or doesn't do that and a similar behavior but with this like with this in the attic and the music box is happening and we have all of and miles has like this he has these two modes that he goes through. That That's the thing that I love about Miles is once you say, okay, I'm not going to look at it as he's possessed, it's not like he's really that weird. He just has two different faces he puts on. He has his, I'm an anarchic bratty child who fucks things up, and the, I'm actually more mature and you're a teacher, you're somebody who's had to experience kids, and I've had to experience kids, that's not uncommon. There are those kids who you know that they're little shits, but when they want to, they they put on this air of, I'm actually more mature than it. Oh, come on, sir. I was gonna. I was literally about to say, as soon as they put on the, that voice and say, sir, like, come on, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and so even though, and this is for, for us, and even in the 60s, you want it to be creepier because... 
it's a it's a it's a it's a period piece. There's something about this period with those outfits and those dresses and those accents that just have an innate uncanny quality to it. And so I think it's uh time to really crack open the big talking points about how we look at this, where do we land, what's our sensation, and what are some of those 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 scenes or those details that make us lean one way or the other on the outcomes, as well as talking about the children too. We haven't actually talked about the kids themselves all that much. I love Miles. I think he's great. That performance, you can tell why that kid was in Village of, Village of the Damned. You can tell why he was in that movie. That, that kid such a little creep, but he's cute. There's just something about him. Very multifaceted, yeah. The, the precocious is the big word that was on my mind. Um, when, when, when a precocious child character is done wrong, it is the most aggravating thing for me. But this one, yeah, he, he played it multiple different ways. Like, he had the very childish, playful one, and then he had ones where it's like a little adult is talking to you. Um, yeah, he, he was very interesting and he, he had a lot of buildup because he didn't start off being at the manor. You, you just hear talk about him like, Oh, really excited that my brother's coming home. How do you know that? Um, and, and the, the housekeeper building him up and then you finally meet him and yeah, he's well-spoken and he looks at things, like literally looks at things. Makes you wonder like, why you got of, kicked out of school. Yeah, and you have all these questions and like there are so many there were so many moments, both of the kids in this film, where like they'll be asked a question and they'll just like as if nothing was even said. Mm-hmm. Like even with Flora like looking out in the water, it's like are you doing this on purpose or not? <laughs> but that's kids. Yeah. They do that. Yeah, do, I've, I know. As do adults sometimes. Like, this is just how people do. They're just not going to answer. Maybe they didn't hear. Maybe they just don't want to answer you. Maybe it's something creepy. That Miles scene where they're sitting at the fire mm. and you hear in the very distance Flora screaming at the top of her lungs and Miles just has this very big smile on his face and he's talking about, oh, I love it when the fire does that, don't you, Miss Giddens? And it's like, I want to put you in the fire. You're such a such a demonic little child. But then he has so many moments of vulnerability that you see from someone of that age. He's at the precipice, right? He's a pre he's in his adolescence, he's entering that. He's like 11 or 12 years old. He is at that weird moment of time where they're a child still but they're no longer like a little child anymore. And you see her struggle with that because this is her first experience. She loves children, but this is her first time actually doing this job. And so it isn't a case of like she's just looking after toddlers. Or just looking after eight-year-olds. She's looking after kids, one in specific, that's in a very volatile moment of their life. Of not just him being a fuck-up at school or whatever, but also just mentality-wise. I know for myself, when I was 11 or 12 or even 13, I thought of myself as like far wiser than I actually was, only to be proven otherwise. Well, yeah, because you're smarter than you were at eight and nine. That's that you 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 hit it on the head. Were there any other moments with with Miles that that stood out to you? Were there any moments with him that creeped you out? 
Uh, well, definitely the one where he's being rough and, you know, not responding. That That's definitely one of the big ones of, like, is he just a child, as you said? Like, they are like that, or is there something a bit more sinister there? There is that whole element of, like, if it is ghosts, then he's he's using that to his advantage. That's that's the big you know worry with with Miles. If if it is actually the ghost of Quint, who seems to have been a bit of a dark figure, um, being in the body of a child, he can m- manipulate that fact. What about the bird? The bird? Oh yeah, underneath. I, for- I forgot pillow. about that. That was creepy. That led to the kiss. <laughs> that did. Yeah. Uh, that was that. Uh, I saw a review of this on Letterboxd. You know, you have a review, it's positive, but then the last line is, not scary, though. Didn't scare me. You don't need to be a, oh, it scared me movie to be a horror film, by mm. the way. Yeah. What I would use as a word to describe the innocence is upsetting. This film is upsetting. It's, it The kiss is deeply upsetting. It is... That's the thing, it's so... Like tightly framed, like they 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 shoot it close, so you see it all. I don't know if I like because it's also like again upsetting to say this because it's a child. It felt very sexual, and it's supposed to make you feel that way. She feels that way, but is it? Is it? Who knows? And even then, too, let's be again genuine. He's entering adolescence. He's gonna have feelings for the cute blonde. Governess, maybe he wants to keep Vergas. You know, is that bad? Is that wrong? Is that innately sinister? Not really, but at the same time, there's just it just it feels so corrupt, and that's the whole point. Is is he corrupted by this previous male figure? Because Mrs. Gross argued that Quint, although had these horrible traits, he did bring a positive. He was a strong male role model for Miles, hence Miles knows how to ride. Yeah, and Miles was following him around all the time, trotting along behind him, I think was the the Mm -hmm. line. Yes. And then we've got Flora. Lovely Flora. She seems so sweet and nice, but she does do the creepy little girl thing a couple of times. I love that shot when she is... Uh, playing with the butterfly and the spider, you this you get this shot of her face is in sharp contrast, and it's right near the camera. Yeah, and the perspective is all weird because then you have Giddens in the distance, but she's also in sharp focus, and there's just there's this disorientating feeling about it. There's just you're you're being drawn to the attention of this small child who's right up to the lens, but also your eye is having to look at Giddens. And I just really liked how that was a how that was composed as as a as a shot. It just visually speaking, the film does really really clever ways of saying, "Look at these children." Not even saying it with judgment, just saying, "Look at them. What do you think about them?" It's not like they're shooting them creepy all the time. There are moments where they're shooting them ominously, but there are moments where it's matter of fact, but we're in the shoes of Giddens so much that we want there to be something wrong. So with Flora, 
What did you think about her overall? She's the younger character, and I know, instance for you as a teacher, you're at the moment you've been having to teach a lot of primary school kids, kids around her age, a lot too. Yeah, there have been a few like that. And、uh, so, how did she go? For you, and were there any particular standout sequences or moments of her?、Uh, I haven't met anyone like her, but、uh, yeah, definitely you could feel the contrast that she had with Miles, where she's definitely unambiguously the younger one.、Um, yeah, she had a lot more. Moments of the things she said not being quite natural to conversation. Like with Miles, there's the eloquence of like, ah, now who is the one speaking contradictions or telling the lies or something like that? You know, there, there's a cleverness there. With her, it is much more innocence. Like when she is not responding, it, it, it is like, oh, she's in a world of her own. There,、um, she doesn't express herself as well. Um, the screaming. She doesn't have life skills. She's a ch- she. She almost drowned her pet tortoise because she didn't know if they could swim.、Mm. Well, she asked the questions,、That、but she already had it in there. Yeah. Oh, like oh shit. Well, good thing you asked. <laughs> but she she's she doesn't have the the skills and yet the screaming. Do you think she saw Jessel? Do I think she saw Jessel? Because that's the big sticking point for Giddens. Is she saw her? She did. Did she say that? No, she lied. But in a, in, but then Giddens clarifies. She, when I say lie, she, she withheld.、Hmm. <laughs> And that's that's the thing. Do these kids see the ghosts? Are they actually there? Did are, are are they in league or are they friends with them or are they just kids and nothing's happening? Because I think that's the big that that's the snapping point when Flora is confronted to look at Jessel, and Giddens is screaming at the top of her lungs and she's saying Jessel and and Flora's freaking out because it was a it was a sticking point like you're not supposed to mention them. That's what I like about Mrs. Gross as a character, by the way. If you want to like her, that's good. She's being good. But if you if you look at her as someone who's maybe not on the on the correct side of things, her whole mentality of let it go, forget it, just ignore it, dream it, don't don't yeah, there was acknowledge one, its existence. There was that one line early on where I think it was Flora said, "Oh, sometimes she says to just pretend it's not there."、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I guess I was stuck more on the idea of possession, but now thinking about, it, I guess Flora was less about possession and more about some sort of connection. Like, connection, some sort of tethering. I know I've used that word in because the past, we see but... her dancing by herself,、mm. and then it's like, oh, is she dancing that, with Jessel. The, the whole the whole setup to that scene also, you know, kind of raised my eyebrows because the, that scene began with、uh, Miles was playing on the piano, and he was playing the song.、Hmm. And then she,、uh, she got up and left, and I thought, like, oh, is is this? Has the song always been the precursor to mysterious things happening throughout the film? And I think that might have been like the last time we heard this song. So, and she denied knowing where it came from. Yeah, she didn't even remember、But、the music. She, she, box. she repeated an excuse that she already used of like, I don't, I don't remember where I learned that or something、mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, so. Made, the film makes me think a point, and then doesn't play the song again. 
at, at the point where you're sick of it, kind of. Um, yeah, but I thought that maybe some, I, I, I guess just to say, I, I am kind of on the side of I think there is supernatural stuff happening. Um, because, yeah, just, she just was not directly explaining, like, why she went all the way out to that little gazebo thing. Um, but because I was stuck on the possession thing, I wasn't thinking about if she could see the thing or not. But, yeah, I, I do think that there was a connection there. And that she, I didn't see it as her necessarily being fully understanding of what she was in league with. I think there was a sort of, yeah, not not fully aware of what is happening to her. I yeah. Well, this is the this is the the moment. I don't think there's any ghosts. I think. Our main character is projecting a lot of her insecurities and feelings and disgust because she is so opposed to how these children were raised previously. And that gazebo scene is a child just wandering down in a place and then the governess is shrieking at her and being like, look over there, do you see this thing? And uh, Mrs. Gross, that line that you know the that Flora mentioned about, like we just pretend, we just don't acknowledge it. You can flip that around. You can pretend that these things are there to better comfort yourself. And Flora is known to be a liar. That was something that Miles said. Is like she's a lie. She lies. She embellishes. She 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 says things. And and Mrs. Gross is labeled in a way as she's also one of the innocents. She was a victim of what happened at this manor, and she probably is coping with it the same way that the children are. How is she any different? She was there. She was having to suffer through all of this as well. So there's moments where it's like, you saw it, didn't you? And it's like, no, I didn't see anything. And you are led to be leave like, well, why would she not say it if she's teamed up with Giddens? But she saw Jessel go through all of this too. She saw Jessel go from this bright, young, happy-go-lucky, dancing all the time to this woman all in black who's who's losing her faculties. And I think she's going through the same process again with Giddens. And it's like, oh, she's, she's in the classroom and she said, we're going to do this and now we're not. But the main thrust that I think is the importance, instead of being like, is it ghosts, is it not, is the failure of Giddens as a character, like her failure, her flaws, because she has a plan. I'm going to take this and expand it. I'm going to bring in the priest. I'm going to talk to other people. She's willing to accept help from others. But then she decides, no, it's only me. Only I can do it. And we see it all fall apart. We see her become this isolated individual, and she makes one of the children go into hysterics, horrifying hysterics, and she feels bad about it, but she uses it as another thing to just motivate her to keep doing what she's doing. She doesn't really take no for an answer at any point during the film. She, not really, like, at the beginning she may, but by the end she's like, oh, I've dismissed all of those things and I'm right. Miles is possessed. 
I must be alone with the child. To be a lot of the dismissals, though, it was at the behest of the housekeeper. It's like, oh, I should get the priest in on this. No, you shouldn't be sharing the secrets. And then she kind of goes with that. So, But she was the one that suggested that we need the priest, Giddens. Mm-hmm. And then she saw Jessel. And then she said, no, I've decided otherwise. It's like, what? What? I guess that is true, yeah. She decided I can handle this. That's what I mean. There's moments where if things went a certain way, we probably wouldn't have landed like this, even if it is possession. But she makes it her cause and hers alone to the point in which you take the rest of them and leave. It's just Miles and I now. She did want to contact the Redgrave, though, and the letter somehow vanished. Yes, well... We know how it vanished. Miles took it. Miles admits to taking it. But he didn't read all of it. I threw it on the fire. I just wanted to know what you were saying about us. And then we get to the climax. Miles versus Giddens. What a scene. Mm. They ask that child actor to step up to the plate and he fucking knocks it out of the park. Is it like this is one of the best child performances we've seen on the pod, right? And s- similar to like the trivia of The Shining, apparently they were hiding the darker elements from the kids too. So, yeah, kudos to that. He is he is all of the things you need him to be. He's sad, he's vulnerable, he's scared, but he's also evil and mean and he's saying these horrid things and he's so small. Like, that's the thing, too. Like, Giddens, she's not a tall lady, but when you put her up against this child who's, like, 12, he's so little in comparison. It's just... There's so many dissonant things going on at the end, but give us your reading, your interpretation of of the ending of this. Miles going off against uh, Giddens. How do you you land on it, or what's what's your perspective on it? Um, well, like I said, I, I do think that the supernatural was an element in it. I've sounded like a crazy person. <laughs> um, Giddens. Not on her, yet. Um, I, I do think that, that Quint did play, well, he definitely played a role in it in the backstory, but the, the, the spiritually there was an element there. Um, and I saw it as... I'm formulating my argument. I'm seeing all, I'm seeing all the counterpoints, and this always happens. That's how it works. Yeah. Um, I, I do see it as this is the point where the the tethering or whatever we want to call it is kind of breaking. Because yeah. with, with both of the kids, we've already moved on from Flora, but when Flora starts screaming and it happens for, like, multiple hours nonstop, mm-hmm. If that wasn't related to Supernatural and that was just a genuine child reaction, I think it was too over the top to be believable as natural. Do you think? Because it's just constant. It's a psychotic break, though. Yeah, but for multiple hours? I believe that. Your throat would fucking die at that point. (laughs) Children keep going. The, the, everyone has a limit, and hours is hours. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I believe it. I believe that. No, I I think I think that that was a result of 
this kind of spell of some sort breaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, with um, with Miles, even though we have established, you know, that he has seen um, trauma in the past, and that could be a justification for like the sudden obscenities that he suddenly hurls at this woman. Um, and that, you know, his sudden apologizing would be a childlike reaction to his, you know, his precocious nature apologizing for what he did. Um, yeah, the, the, the element of him just suddenly dying Mm. is one that I, you know, kind of raise my eyebrow to because I guess how do you, how do you read the death part? Well, let me go back first a bit, and I'll lead up because that's you know. That's, oh, so that's... this is what you're doing, Ryan. You're you're throwing me at the ending and talk, make me talk about the ending. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because it all goes to this, right? Mm. I love the cinematography of Quint appearing behind the condensation of the greenhouse windows, and they're mm. sweating, and they're just. It's just such a such a different feel because although this takes place in the day a lot during the film and we even hear like, ooh, it's getting hot out and, and Flora likes it when it's hot and that's great because she's Flora. So, you know. And in the end, it takes place at a greenhouse, which is cool. Mm-hmm. But they have him quint behind or, or above his shoulder, like he's the devil on his shoulder and he's speaking through this child. But... How much is that just of the character projecting onto this? But we also know that Miles got kicked out of school for this type of thing. He would say horrible things and he would do horrible things and he scared the other boys. I love that line delivery, by the way. That's probably his best line delivery is, I would scare the other boys. It's Mm. just, he says it so matter-of-factly, but also it upsets him that that's the case, that he scares the other boys. And the death. So it's been debated. It's been the big hot-button topic of how is he dead for one, but how did he die? And the thing that I always got out of it was he got exhausted because he's sweating buckets. That kid is fucking sweating buckets and he's screaming and yelling at her. And I thought of it just as a as like a as a faint thing. But the thing that many people argue is she killed him. She shook him. And she grabbed him by the neck and she did something like that. And I've never really been bought into that argument as much. There's all the argument is did she break his neck? That's the question. Because she grabs him and she throttles him when he's already down on the ground to figure out if he's okay. And oh, so, like he fainted and then while fainted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And so that is the case. And then she gives him the kiss and she's like, Miles, Miles, Miles. And I can see that. I can see that. And I've tried to see it more on other watches, but I I don't know about it still. And when it comes to it, if it's a supernatural entity just killing the child out of spite or it just having been broken and so its possession has taken the life of a child, I, I, I can see that read of it too. Uh, I think my issue is it doesn't, although this rule doesn't, ha- although this film doesn't have a lot of established rules, it does enough. So when, say, when Flora goes what she goes through, you can see it the way you're talking about because with the little bits of Christian stuff that that uh, Giddens says along the way, it 
it lends credence. But she seems genuinely surprised that Miles, that this killed Miles. Like, why would it kill him? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, at, at first I thought he just passed out. And then when she was, you know, checking up on him, I was like, oh, oh that is death? Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I, I, I'll be realistic with you. When it first ended, I didn't believe that he was dead. I just thought it was her being hysterical and over the top as 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 is usual at this case but his eyes are open they're not blinking but he's also known for being a little weirdo like that it's just yeah so for my read of it being her crazy i'm still unsure about like the quote-unquote death aspect of it i think of it as him like just having exhaustion uh he's been running around in the greenhouse but so you're saying that children do have limits? Yes, they have limits. They reach the <laughs> limit, but but Flora doesn't. <laughs> the, well, yeah. Well, he's in a he's in like a three piece suit in a greenhouse sweating. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I feel like screaming. Yeah, the screaming stuff. I don't know. I didn't I didn't have any issue with that. But The Innocence is a is a film after sixty years. You can still debate and discuss. And I think it lives and breathes on more than just that. There are some features out there that is, that's all it has, is how do you feel about the real interpretation of this? But if you actually get one of quality like this, there's there's all these elements at play and it's, a, it's deeper, as it should be. I think we have talked about it, but M. Night Shyamalan, for instance, is a filmmaker that forgot that over time when you watch unbreakable if you know the ending it doesn't mean that the rest of the film no longer is an enthralling tale and it's no longer a good character study no it doesn't ruin that and i would say the same for your favorite film of his the one that you've watched many times over of course you 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 always say to me, Ryan. I've watched The Sixth Sense a million uh, times. And I was like, I haven't rewatched any of his films. Which one are you talking about? <laughs> the joke is Bartek has has never really watched the movie. He had a broken DVD, and the was ending was the ruined for him by Fifty First Dates. Is that you? No, it was Twenty to One. Twenty to One. Who did I know? Maybe it's Rachel. I think Rachel had it ruined. Uh, yeah, Fifty First Dates. I defin- mentioned in. I definitely film. saw Fifty First Dates before, but I didn't remember that part of it. But I think that I swear that's mentioned in there. No, Prove me wrong. 20 nerds. to 1 got it. Not 50, 20. But uh, when it comes to The Innocence, is there anything else you want to say about it? And would you recommend? I, I definitely do agree with what you were saying about how, yeah, the, the truth behind it all is not the point of it. It is the structure of it. In an alternate universe, you know, that that quote-unquote debate we just had, if we took that super seriously, we'd be misguided <laughs> and that's why yeah we kind of just concluded like yeah eventually you will hit the point of like yeah i, I can't explain that because there, there is credence on both sides like what is what is mrs gross's real thing on it like does she see and she's in denial or is she not like that does she have a first name hmm. has she appeared in anything we've ever reviewed on this show she has yeah the, oliver yeah oliver where she played I don't know if you guys will believe this, 
A housekeeper. A housekeeper, you say? <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm shocked, in fact. Yeah, seven or eight years later, doing the similar role. Different. D- different, yeah. In colour. Same job. In colour, yeah. In colour. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you recommend? No. Yes, I would recommend this film. I highly recommend it, of course. This stands the test of time. The filmmaking is spectacular. The amount of trivia dedicated to just the 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 amount of effort they went to to make this film is 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 truly inspiring. There's lots of details about lighting. I I don't think I've ever done a movie on this podcast where the trivia talks so much about the technicals of lighting than the innocence. They had to do so many tricks. They had to have so many specific types of lights and this many. And there was even jokes about how you're trying to set the studio on fire, like this this lot on fire because you have so many fucking lights. Yeah, there was that one guy. The actress apparently had to wear sunglasses between takes because there were so many fucking lights. It's just... But it all is worth it. Uh, How ironic for a dark film. uh, Oh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, that is The Innocence. It is a great way to kick off the month of the spookiness. And I'm glad this one landed for you more than, than The Haunting. The Haunting was one where... I hadn't really seen it before. I knew of its reputation. And I was like, oh, I've, I've seen The Innocence. I want to do one I hadn't seen before. But I'm glad that this one, we both came in with a certain mindset. Because that's the thing. If I'm recommending this to anyone, you have to have a certain mood. This isn't just one where you just turn it on and you go, all right, The Innocence, let's go. It is... And have a chat with your mates while it's playing? Oh, imagine that. <laughs> Imagine doing that, <laughs> and you're just throwing popcorn at the screen and going, yeah, Giddens, Giddens, get out of there. Hey, mate, what are you looking at in your phone, eh? You can't. Uh, so well, that's pretty cool. The next episode is a listening people's recommendation. A spooky listening people's recommendation. A spooky recommendation. listening people's recommendation. It's a more modern film, a more recent film. Ooh, when I say 1962. Recent, it's, it's like within the last 10 years, uh, 2015 movie recommended my by my friend Jack from my hometown. The uh, Jack Duncan? Donkey, Donkey. He, last time he recommended a film, it was... Uh, yeah, he was... He recommended, recommended a more serious one this time. A serious one? Called The Black Coat's Daughter. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, if you are aware of its existence, but... Uh, I won't say anything. I have seen this once before because of Jack's recommendation in the past. So I am keen to discuss the only thing I will say about it is do not look up anything. Not just that. Do not look up who's behind the camera or in front of the camera. Just let it happen. And then once it's over, enjoy. Okay. That's one of those things. It's one of those things because I want to discuss that next time on the podcast. So everyone make sure to check out The Black Coat's Daughter from 2015. Uh, we will be discussing that. Make sure to give it a watch and join us for the discussion on the pod. If you want to contact us more directly, you can do so over at our email, which is... Bartek, what is our email? Do you know? 
sometimes we just don't respond. <laughs> oh, he's being a funny little guy. When you mentioned that in the episode, I wanted to do it at some point, but I forgot. And now I just decided now. It would be too late, Bartek. Idiot. The email is spitandpolished at gmail.com. We are on social media at Spit and Polish Presents. You will find us. We post on the there. And if you want to recommend movies to us, you do it through the social media or through that email. We add it to a list of films and we eventually get around to watching and discussing them. I thank you all so much for joining us, for listening to us. You are great. Uh, remember to be kind to each other or... I'll have to travel overseas and leave you with a crazy governess who's blonde. He likes them. I like them pretty, you know. Oh, I thought you were going to bookend it by saying you were going to be a spook. Well, and then the, you were going to spook. Uh, okay. I'm, uh, is that a place? I'm going to spook? But that's the definition that you gave at the beginning. I am. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a spook. Yeah, Lilith. <laughs> Yeah, I, I already accidentally used the slur version. Now you're ending on the slur version. <laughs> For the police, though. Can I, can I just... Final statement. Black people, are we sorry? Bartek, sorry. <laughs> Ryan isn't. I've done nothing wrong. <laughs> oh, no, oh, right. Okay. Well, I guess... Yeah, I guess you have, and you are perfect. <laughs> okay, no. For real, last thing I'll say. Get back to the mic. Get back to the mic. What does I keep this all in? <laughs> I want you to. I have a thing. Ryan, if you do the play again, are you going to try harder this time? Not only will I try try harder, I'll play all the female parts. <laughs> Which is like two, three. It's like three female parts to the three male parts. Four, technically, because... You get, like, that other housekeeper lady who shows up for that one scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I guess Jessel, so five. You get five. I remember with the Anna thing, is like, they kept mentioning other people at the manor, and I was like, we're not seeing them, that's part of the trick. And then one of them shows <laughs> and up then to Anna be like, just, Anna. Uh, Anna shows up, it's like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs>